What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, January 28th, 2022. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to tune in to the episode that was released today with a friend from Down Under, Loris Marini. We talked about talked about data, man. We talked about data, you know, the foundation, discovering data. Um, it was a great conversation. Check it out. Um, it's released, and it was great. So... There's also the Comet Office Hours that happened on uh, Wednesday. We talked, we did a panel discussion with the CEO of Superconductive, the company behind Great Expectations. That was Abe Gong. Had Jimmy Whitaker from Pachyderm and also a good friend of the show, Matt Blasso, was also there talking about uh, connecting the dots between uh, data governance data versioning pipelines, data expectations, and things like that, all about getting data prepared for machine learning. So, into that that's on the comet youtube uh, we've got working sessions going on with that as well so definitely check that out shout out to everybody in the building van ken eric serge russell what's going on everyone um i'm, I'm excited to uh to, to be here so does my audio seem off all right i can try to fix that um let's see what's going on here does it what's it sound like can somebody describe it to me sounds a bit like the, the gains very up okay maybe this helps a little bit yeah that sounds better all right yeah sorry about that guys hopefully i didn't blow up you guys speakers um for some reason i had my um input level on the audio set all the way up to the highest possible uh, spot should be good now uh shout out to everybody tuning in on linkedin what's going on if you guys got questions comments whatever please do let us know uh leave a message in the in the uh, channel uh the comment section um if you got questions in the chat please do let me know as well feel free to uh drop your questions right there in the chat um so what are we going to kick off today what are we going to talk about man i had a question queued up but i forgot what it was so it's going to take me a second of uh killing time to, to to remember it's it's been a busy busy week let me tell you that much man i've uh uh, done i think three or four presentations this week two webinars uh yeah two webinars and the live session so it's been uh been all over the place man if anybody has questions please do let me know let's uh, let's kick it off um i guess uh we'll, we'll kick it off with ken ken how you doing man doing great been uh been working hard i have some fun projects in the pipeline so i am really excited to be able to to come clean about those on monday yeah, I'm excited so for this big reveal. Them. I'm excited for this big reveal, man. I'm excited to see what this well, is uh, all about. I have two big ones back to back. So I, I can tease the first one. Uh, it's my first community project coming out Monday, okay. um, where I actually share some of my own data and everyone is is open to analyze it and, and look at it with me. So oh, a, nice. a little bit different. Everyone's looking for projects. This is one that will have real utility on uh impacting hopefully my life some deep dark secrets might also come out but you know so how can people join this is this just like something that's uh like to tune into a youtube channel you have all the details or how can people get a you know be a part of this yeah the the video will be out monday um it will also be available on kaggle okay. so i'm posting the data there it'll be the first data set i ever post there so um yeah just a, a little bit different a lot of fun and I'm excited to to see what people come up with. So is it just putting the data out there and letting people kind of do what they do with it or are there guidelines or parameters or do we just have to wait until Monday to find out? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple things that I think would be really cool. But, you know, to be honest, a lot of it is I'm interested in seeing the creativity of the community and seeing what they come up with. And 
uh, obviously we'll be giving away some prizes and those types of things for the for the most interesting work, the most shared work and this and and things along those lines. Awesome, man. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun and that's very brave of you to put uh, put all your data out there. I'm excited to see what, what data points you got to uh, play around with. Um, actually, Eric and I, we connected a couple of days ago. We thought it'd be interesting to uh, uh, get all of our friends, i.e. everyone here in this room and everyone watching uh, to lend us their Spotify listening data and maybe we could do something with that. Uh, we didn't flesh out the uh, details of the project, but I think that could be cool. Like, a, you know, music recommendation based on the artist of data science folks uh yeah i'm excited for that too that would be way more embarrassing than the data that i'm sharing <laughs> yeah i mean see some of the crazy shit i've been listening to blippy garbage truck song and monster truck song it's uh yeah blippy man that guy that guy won the game uh for sure um right on guys so if you guys got questions in the chat on linkedin wherever you are please do let us know definitely gonna be taking questions um I don't have a question, but I have a follow-up on last week. <clears throat> yeah, please. Yeah, so last week I asked about, you know, how to test SQL or whatever without adding, uh, increasing to the collective misery of the planet. Um, and so I I was thinking a lot about, you know, what Vin and Dave were talking about, about, you know, how could you just make like a, a hard question and just have somebody just go forth and Google um, and figure it out. <clears throat> Tried to come up with a few different things that kind of built on built on one another, just like kind of a realistic task would. And then I asked a couple of other analysts just for feedback on it. I haven't like actually had anybody do the test yet, um, but just for feedback, looking at it. And I did get a couple of uh, interesting responses of just good responses of like, wow, like, you know, yes, that's accurate. And oh, dang, that second question would be really challenging. And so I don't want to make it like too too hard because I only have a short period of time, but I was glad to see, like, I felt like I was trying, kind of striking a decent balance between, you know, oh, I know how to do this and now I'm going to have to Google it because, you know, because that's just how work is. So we're going to come on it, but uh, it's been, been going well so far. I was glad to get some feedback. Nice, man. Well, I'm glad that was uh, helpful to you. I was going to say, Antonio, you're quite uh, quite good with SQL as well. Like if, if you were to um, create like an assessment of someone's SQL skills, like what are like the two essential topics that you would structure your question around? So Eric, I was trying to follow, but is that for like who who's your audience or who's your target audience? So target audience would be people applying for like senior analyst or above um, positions? I think, I mean, that's very tough because I'm in the boat of, if you know how to join and like group by and like do some basic stuff, then you can pick up other things, you know, depends how SQL heavy it is. So I might not be the best because I'm in the boat where, I mean, honestly, for, for Google, they asked me a SQL question, right? And before that, I heard about technical assessments and I went on interview query and I practiced like advanced and medium stuff. And I go there and he asked me something about a, like a, how do you transpose the data thing with like cross apply or something? It was literally like a three line SQL code. And I totally blanked out during my interview. And I was like, uh, uh, I was like, I have no idea how to do this. And so I was like, all right, this is going down the drain. And as soon as I ended my interview, I, I like Googled it for a second and I ended up emailing the same person. I found him on like LinkedIn, found his email, emailed them. And I'm like, hey, I know I totally bombed the SQL interview, but I actually know how to do this. I just was preparing for something totally so much more advanced. And you asked me something so simple and I ended up sending him the solution and I ended up passing the interview round. And 
and that's just how I like, get jobs still somehow. But I guess that's why I'm, I might not be the best person to ask because I am very against kind of like making a, advanced like assessment because I've been doing SQL for a good amount of time. And when it came to like me getting assessed, I completely bombed it. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting point. Like I like how you you sent a follow-up email. Like, I mean, I'm guessing it was relatively shortly after and you're just like, Hey, look, I know I blanked out, but here's what the answer should have been. Uh, I'll be curious, Vin, like, what are your thoughts on, on that? Like if a candidate was in an interview with you and they blanked, let's say on the, the coding assessment, but then like, let's say within, within the half hour after that, they, they yeah, I was up. like the 15, like probably 20 to 30 minute range where I yeah. would immediately like just email them right away. Yeah. Like what are your thoughts on, on that? Do you think that that should help a candidate, hurt a candidate? Do you think companies should be, uh, I guess, lenient towards that? That would remind me so much of myself and like how, like how I would act that, yeah, that'd be huge. Just because I think all of us are like that. You know, when you get to a certain level, you get something wrong and it's just, you can't let it go. And that's something that I look for is, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like, I don't care if you give me the job. It's, I just don't want to leave this thing this way. I just can't do that. Right. <laughs> you know, whether it's reputation, whether it's, you know, I hate being wrong, whether it's like, I can't leave that question, you know, just hanging there. there there's just something there. You know what I mean? That it, it just resonates. Uh, Ken, Ken has a little story here. Third person he knows that did that. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that by the way shout out to yeah. everybody watching on linkedin on youtube uh and in the room if you guys got questions let me know i'll go ahead and add you to the queue yeah i uh, you know I, there was someone i had on my podcast ray ogl oj i can never pronounce his name awesome guy but he landed his first uh data analyst role because he had an interview with the you know a technical interview and then interview with the ceo technical interview he did not do well but he did that exact same thing he's like oh you know, like I knew this, I like researched it. I went in and, and followed up with a guy and worked perfectly. I mean, he landed the job. They really liked that, uh, that approach. I mean, just as Vin said, isn't that exactly what you want in a candidate is that they want something to be done, right? They want to go the extra mile to make sure that, uh, that the stakeholder or the end user is not given faulty information and they're willing to admit when they're wrong and go back and revise their own work. To me, it's really hard to, to like fault that person in any way. And like, there's no possible way that that looks bad for them. Uh, Russell's got a great comment here. Then after and if Russell, they don't like it, maybe you don't want to work for that person. Yeah. Uh, Russell, go ahead. Uh, go ahead with the comment and then uh, we'll go to Mark after that. Um, go for it. Sure. So it's just a very generic comment saying that, um, I think a, a person's, <clears throat> excuse me, person's knowledge of the language um, of basic syntax and uh, functions and which of the functions are optimal for which particular challenge in any form of analysis and then which of the basic forms can interplay with each other uh, and which you can nest to get functions can be a very good indicator of someone's understanding of the language, even if they struggle under interview conditions to answer a specific problem. Uh, so if you kind of take the, here's a problem, solve this in two hours, or you won't progress out of the equation and just talk generally about some of the basic elements of the language and how the structures um, work, I, I think that can be a good indicator. But it's perhaps not directly applicable to your question, um, 
Eric, but a fancy supplements if there's if there can be a you know a, you know a hats off general chat kind of section uh, outside of specific challenges. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, then like if that's a like a kind of a hard balance or whatever, like you're saying, like is it the general general stuff versus I also like trying to give somebody a look at like this is like this is what I do. This is you know the kind of the specifics of what I do. Is it something you're interested in or or not? You know, because they're interviewing me as much as you know I'm interviewing them, right? Let's go to uh, Mark. Yeah, I just wanted to share a story um, just to balance out <laughs> what has been shared here. Unfortunately, I didn't get that like, oh, wow, thanks for coming back and giving this amazing detail. So I was interviewing for uh, Facebook for a role. I did the technical screen. I uh, did okay for the SQL thing, but typical Facebook asked like a very product-focused question. And I just completely blanked out. Um, and for context, like my background's in like research design experimental design so it was around experimental design for products so it was like my bread and butter and i just blanked out and so uh similar thing i was like wow how did i mess that up so over the night i just researched you know how can i best answer that create this whole thing and the next morning i was like all right let me just get a fresh mind i was typing out the email and i sent it i was like super excited kind of similar advice um i didn't notice that five minutes before i sent the email i received a rejection email mm. from them <laughs> and I sent this email saying like, hey, like, here's what I would have done differently. And then I opened my inbox and saw that. And I was like, please disregard this last email. <laughs> um, and so sometimes it doesn't work out. But it was a good exercise where if I actually had to do that question again, I would totally crush it. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Mikiko is actually here uh, in the chat on linkedin uh surprise google at that pass uh dave brown says i hate interviews because of how easy the questions are set my most hated one is to write a join in sql while it should be explained why you would use a join um that's that's interesting uh also uh dave brown another comment it's a two-way street there were a few companies that i've interviewed for uh, that I would love for a recognition of a mistake while they are the ones providing the job. It would be a great indicator of someone who I'd want to work for. Yeah, dude, I've done that before. Like I've, I've definitely messed up a lot of interview questions. And then just 10 minutes afterwards, like, oh yeah, by the way, uh, this is actually what I meant to say and how I would have done it. Um, sometimes it works out and you move on. Sometimes you don't, uh, but it's worth a shot. Like I, I mean, totally agree with Ben. It's just something that bothers me. It's like, all right, like, like I know how to do this and I'm just going to prove it to you that I do know how. Uh, it's just your artificial constraints made me so I was, you know, unable to do it efficiently. There, go for it. And then Serge, I see. Well, that's a quick follow-up. So I can't remember somebody here posted this on LinkedIn, maybe even more than once. Like, I'm not 100% like into the idea of coding tests anyway right because like really like literally the only like time coding test i ever took while interviewing i failed and it was terrible and i felt just bad about myself even though it was like one stupid thing right and so i'm not necessarily thinking okay this is going to be the, this like magical test that's going to be a useful thing for forever and ever um so like if you weren't like if you weren't going to have a coding test and we were just going to ask i'm just going to ask you like three questions in a conversation that we're going to have over the next 25 minutes and i want to understand if you understand stuff um without a select statement involved what would you like what, what would you ask mark go for it 
I think a good question I, we're actually just talking about within my, my within my job on our team is when's the proper time to use a CTE as compared to a subquery? Um, they're both very similar. They, they basically do the same thing, but it starts going to like, how do I write my code? And like, how do I think about readability and, and like how others can interpret that? And so like the, the, the kind of logic that we came about with is like, you know, we could, we could be wrong. Man, I'd be, there might be some defined best practices, but, you know, if it's an individual piece of logic, I want to use a CTE to kind of break that out. But uh, if it's a subquery that's like tightly, like needed for a CTE, um, like some subset within the CTE, like I might like include that to infer like, hey, this is like a couple of logic. Um, the main thing is just being able to explain like my reasoning of like, why did I structure my SQL code this way with the goal of like being able to explain to others or let them have like an idea of like what's happening. And for me, that, that tells me like, one, they actually care about their code. Um, and two, they care about communicating to others. CTEs versus subqueries seem to be like, I mean, going to bring out everybody's SQL philosopher, I think. Uh, Serge, any <clears throat> Any input here? Oh, <laughs> I was just typing something. Um, I I think I kind of find that my experience would push things off track a little bit. But yeah, recently I had a recruiting experience. Um, I'm not actively looking for a job, but the CEO of a company uh, reached out to me. And the job they were offering was right up my alley. Um, you know, uh, for those that know, I, I wrote a book on interpretable machine learning. So like uh, uh, the job involved that, pretty much that and facing customers, just something I've done throughout my 20 plus year career. So like uh, he knew that off the bat and they put me down the same rabbit pro hole they put all the other recruiters, uh, the re recruits or uh, applicants, if you will. And uh, it, it was annoying because, you know, like, from off the bat, they, they, you know, the CEO told me one process, then the hiring manager told me a different process. Then uh, they put me in contact with the recruiter and the recruiter uh, set up a, a, a meeting with me. And it turned out that it was not a meeting with the recruiter, but uh, with a, uh, you know, uh, data scientist. And it was a technical interview, which I, I aced, but it was completely unexpected. And then after that interview was supposed to come apart that I knew was part of the whole process, which was to take a paper on interpretable machine learning, a, a you know, academic paper and, and create a presentation on it. I knew I was gonna do that and that was it. But apparently there was that and even more technical interviews after that. And I said, you know, like, I didn't wanna be a jerk about it, but you know, like, I already have a job that I like. I mean, what? there's no guarantee I'm going to be wasting my time for hours here. You know, I'm okay with creating a presentation because that's something that could be useful for me later on. But, uh, you know, a coding exam is not useful to me. And, it, you know, there's like maybe like less than a 10% chance I get the job if I'm being, uh, you know, maybe pessimistic or optimistic. I don't know. But uh, I thought, you know, it's it's there's a chance I'm going to be wasting my time for a few hours. And uh Clearly, they don't value it, <laughs> um, you know, and, and the CEO contacted me. So I, I don't know, that should put me in a different position than other people. Or am I make, uh, being too fussy or, or a jerk? <laughs> uh, let's go to Vin on this one. And then after Vin, I cannot think you had a uh, 
comment in here case, about case studies might be appropriate or not, but then go for it. Yeah, I think at a certain point, and I know I've said this before, but at a certain point, like you don't fit in the interview process. If you want to hire super senior people, you know, and I call them the senior plus plus because you get past like they're senior 10, 10 to 15 years, but as soon as you break that 15 to 20 year horizon, like putting somebody like that, unless they're transitioning into a new career or a new role, putting somebody like that through and enter the normal interview process. It's like, how would you even, why would you do that? What's wrong with you? You know? And so when I, because there's people that I've hired just because they said they were interested in a job and I'm like, okay, Let's, you know, let me get you an offer letter. Why am I interviewing somebody with 15 pages worth of Google search results when it comes to research and body of work? And it's like, what? I'm not going to, who do I know that's qualified to interview you? And so I get, you can hear me getting flustered because I don't want to say the, the, the truth that is coming to my mind, but some companies really have to look at hiring very senior people like they do hiring C-suite roles because it's exactly the same process. You don't hire, your CEO doesn't show up for a job interview like a VP does. I mean, that's a different vetting process. That's an entirely different workflow for recruiting, for interviewing, for assessing. It's 100% different. So why would you then have somebody who is just as experienced from a technology standpoint, going through something different. It doesn't make sense. Companies have to figure out how to create this second process. And really successful companies have. Most of the largest tech firms have, you know, really three or four different tracks that you go down. And depending upon what type of role they're putting you in, there is no interview for some of them. I mean, some of these jobs are sales pitches. So, and companies have to understand they need to build out tracks of interview process. And if they don't, they can't attract top talent. And, and I can tell you, you know, for certain that there are companies who are like, yeah, we only hire the top. And it's like, I see you process. No, you're not. No one who's a top talent would go through this. And so you're kind of, you're lying to yourself. You, you're hiring the top people that will put up with the pain of going through what you're putting them through. And so, you know, if I could, if I could say one thing to companies who are trying to hire people who are very senior, who are going to build organizations, build departments, build practices like ethical AI, explainable AI, all of these things that companies desperately need and don't have is if you've got an expert stop just off from the job, if they've published credible work, if they have peer reviewed body of work, stop just off from the job. Ben, thank you. Thank you so much. There's a lot thank of you. a lot of people uh, vibing with it on LinkedIn. A lot of plus 100 from for Vin from Akiko, who's on uh, LinkedIn today, uh, and and as well as uh, Trey. Um, I mean, it, I heard about the story about the dude that invented homebrew, like the thing that we all use on the terminal. And he went to go interview at Google, and I guess uh, because he couldn't invert a binary tree, they rejected his application. And he had like this angry tweet about it. Um, uh, I'll have to find it and they use the exact words, but it's like, yeah, like Sky invented something that uh, pretty much the entire team uses and, uh, you know, modernized computing in a way. Um, uh, Ken, what are your thoughts? By the way, if anybody has questions or comments, please do let me know uh, here in the chat um, as well as on LinkedIn. Shout out to everybody uh, not on camera. That's uh, Matt Blazers in the building, Gina's in the building, Eric Gatonga, Chris Murphy. Uh, good to have all you guys here. Yeah, I mean, just a real quick follow up with what Ben was saying. I think that, like, I am by no means a, a senior leader, but I also have designed my career in a way that I shortcut a lot of things. Um, 
but if someone you're you're hiring senior leaders for the body of work that they've that they possess what they've done in the past like there is no way you're going to evaluate accurately what they're capable of in any form of assessment even really in an interview right you're looking at at the impact they've had in other companies you you look at the impact that they have in their own personal work books research whatever it is um and that interview is almost exclusively to see if you can work with that person it shouldn't be to assess anything because all of those things, if they're reasonably senior or out there in the public for the world to see, or you've heard about it, or it's on the resume, you could at least ask them about that. But to me, the, the idea of some sort of assessment related to that is, is ridiculous. Um, uh, for, for, for Eric, um, I'm a huge fan of case studies, just talking through problems. I mean, it could even be something similar to what you'd use for a technical interview, but rather than having them code it, or rather than having them actually write SQL, just talk about the process that they would use and what they're thinking about when they're evaluating a problem like that. Or if you're like, how would you design this, like this ETL? Or like, how would you design this process? What would it look like from end to end based on this specific problem? I think the verbal communication of technical concepts, at least to me, is more important than if they can write the code, because you, you can just Google the code and the syntax and those types of things. So in, in the past, when I've, when I've uh, done interviews like that, as the interviewer, I've always put a huge premium on the, the explicability. If they want to use a whiteboard to describe it, to show how things join, to, to do those types of things, why not? Um, I consider that like semi-technical, but you know that's also an opportunity for you to have a dialogue and for you to dive kind of further and see if they truly understand the concept. You can see where they're strong very clearly, and also you can evaluate some of their weaknesses and pry into those just a little bit more. Um, that does get away from like having a one and zero, like this person passed or didn't pass, obviously. But if you really want to know the candidate, like having a conversation with them and using that time like to, to see that thought process, at least to me, is like huge premium over uh, a coding test in, in most circumstances. Absolutely love that. I think one thing that it, I, I would love to see assessed in uh, especially modern knowledge work type of jobs is uh, gauging someone's ability to find an answer, uh, because that's really, really a cutting, you know, kind of a differentiator in in in, in knowledge work, just be able to find answers quickly, right? So do you know the space well enough to come up with the appropriate search terms? And do you know how to search them and how to find answers that are credible and then you know put them to work? Um, I don't know that, that like there should be a, a Googling component to most to most interviews. Maybe Google should uh, should have a part in their interview where they interview you on the ability to use Google. Um, Third, go for it. No, no, I was just laughing. I <laughs> just said, um, yeah, I definitely think it's a it's a good skill. If you can't Google, you know, if 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 you're not uh, proactive and you know, you can you know search for things, you know, um, in creative ways and and find them, um, you know, like even if it's like uh, you know you get a coding error, there's different strategies you could find to. It's not just going to Stack Overflow. The certain things, certain kind of use, ways of using the keywords to your advantage uh, to find the most, uh, you know, the, the latest, uh, you know, information about that. Um, that is very important because it can increase your productivity and also shows into how the person thinks. So I think it's definitely, I think someone tweeted about that, that a person put amongst their skills googling and um and the person said in the tweet yeah we're definitely interviewing this person <laughs> um because it's it's a skill that is completely underrated 
Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, he could be sitting there for hours on end trying to find the maybe not the solution, but something that'll get you on the right track. But without having the right combination of domain knowledge to have the right search terms ready at hand to look up, plus the ability to effectively search for them, like you know, you could save hours and hours on on end. Shout out to uh to to Greg Coquillo in the building, also see Antonio's baby. Uh, that that that's a cute kid, man. That Anyone's is- hiring, he's looking for a job. <laughs> How old is he now? He's he's about three and a half months, and he still hasn't paid me rent. Um, yeah. So he better find a good salary because I'm going to start charging. <laughs> Trust me, man. It's a lot easier when they're blobs. All of a sudden, they start moving around, and it's like, where are you going? You're getting into everything. Please stop. Calm down. Um, <laughs> we'll yeah. see. Right on. Um, if anybody's got a question or anything, please let me know. Uh, looking through the chat on linkedin don't see anything there uh don't see anything here either so what's up everybody uh somebody's asking something about dax in uh, so it's dave brown how advanced are more dax expressions i don't think i know what dax is d-a-x i've been extremely difficult dax expression but i choose to try to program many of these values before entering a visualization program into a table to keep the visualization report fast are simple dax expressions good enough interviews are saying they use dax for everything writing 10 to 15 expressions per day are they talking about simple expressions um curious if anybody has a uh, answer to this what's this question what's the question uh how advanced are most dax expressions d-a-x hopefully i'm saying that the right way i don't know how else you'd say that um yeah. yeah I think you can make it as complicated as you want, right? Depending on what you're searching. Um, For me, DAX is kind of like has a syntax of like conditions that you put, like has a language of case when. So Uh case when you have this variable, then aggregate these numbers and put them in this time window and things like that. So, um, and this is definitely something that, you know, uh, is behind Power BI. So when you're, uh, kind of, I think then you put that in the, the side. Uh, so I, it's more of a, a no, one understanding your data, understanding what you're trying to pull, and then practicing. For me, I played with a lot of, I did a lot of, um, uh, you know, errors by, by, you know, trial and error until I got it right, watching a lot of videos, but it can get really complicated. But also, it's a fun exercise to kind of test your creativity too, in terms of how you want to pull the data and things like that. Um, super interesting uh and i, and I love power bi that's by the way so uh, and you can even use dax in excel through power query so it's uh pretty cool thank you very much greg yeah i've never never heard of dax i've uh, admittedly not done like any business intelligence in my you know quantitative career um seems to be something that uh, i'd like to work on and get better at um there was a uh, a resource for dax that uh, Eric Sims had mentioned Calvin D. Wild, uh, Calvin uh, De Wild, um, W I L D E on LinkedIn. Um, I've seen him come up in my newsfeed, but uh, I've never actually chatted with him. Would love to. Uh, would love to, to chat with him. Um, Gina, you've got a question. Go for it. Cool. Thanks, um, Harpreet. So sorry I missed the first couple of these happy hours um, this year. But it's cool to see everyone again. And um, I love the conversations. They're always so wide ranging. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently, Super Data Science podcast, um, talking to, I believe it was Sadie St. Lawrence, about trends in 2022. 
And um, from, you know, kind of career corner, job search corner, um, you know, one thing that I, as a um, recent, relatively recent boot camp uh, grad and job seeker kind of struggle with, I know we've talked about this a little on other happy hours, but the sheer, the rate of change in this field in data science, uh, which is really intense. And also um, how, you know, job searchers starting out might incorporate some of the, the trends people see for 2022. And so I'm not going to cite the trends that they talked about. Rather, I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on trends for 2022 and those that are specifically relevant for, um, you know, for job searchers, maybe those who are career changing or um, kind of early on in their data science careers. Shout out to, uh, to Sadie St. Lawrence and, and John Crone, both, uh, both friends of mine. Um, hopefully you guys are tuning in. Uh, but yeah, anybody got any insight here on trends? Um, so it's so trends on what candidates need to know in, in, in terms of tooling. I'm not sure if I caught that bit. Yeah. I mean, data's kind of big. Well, they even talked about some, what they called micro trends and macro trends. So, um, I think they talked about tools, auto ML type stuff is one kind of area. Um, and then they also, in a way that might be more what they considered micro uh, or more kind of tactical, I guess. And then maybe macro trends in the sense of, you know, they talked about GANs and deep fakes and some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the big kind of hype up and coming. Well, it's already here to some extent, of course, but um, things that will continue to change in those areas that can have really um, broad ramifications for our society. And so, yeah, again, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of, I mean, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on those trends anyway. And then if there's kind of a direct correlation to job seekers, you know, who might be early on in their data science career, I'd love to hear that too. Greg, go for it. I'm not going to give you an answer in terms of like what tools, since, you know, I'm probably the least technical guy here. Uh, but what I would like to say to my younger self or whoever wants to adventure is to follow the data. Uh, where is data being generated? First of all, talking about trends in 2022 is already a thing in the past. What is happening? What is going to happen in 2023 and beyond? Um, and where is the data going? So what are the things that are, we're starting to talk about nowadays? When you think about metaverse, when you think about cloud everywhere, what does that mean? To me, IoT is going to get big and you will need to do something with that data you're collecting from all of these billions of devices that will collect from manufacturing sites everywhere you go. What can you do to generate value? So start thinking about how can you run tiny models on devices? Um, how can you do uh, things about you know real-time inferences? So nowadays you hear ML around uh, batch inferences a lot. So what about real-time, right? Can you create a new market with that? Um, you know, try to think about beyond 2022 and uh, see where you can start. You know, keep getting your skills around to kind of excel in this space. Um, you also have quantum computing. Um, uh, automated vehicles. I mean, quantum computing. Can you imagine a world where, yes, you may have a couple of uh, uh, establishments or, or, or data centers that 
create the state-of-the-art error correction, uh, quantum computing uh, that will distribute over the cloud. And then now you as the data professional, you can leverage CPU, QPU for quantum processing unit versus CPU, GPU. You can jump from, from either one of them when you need. Just kind of anticipate those things and kind of position yourself in this case. And then you can work backwards to figure out what kind of tools you need um, to uh, learn it. So is it going to be Python? Is it going to be something else, Julia, whoever? Uh, that's secondary, in my opinion. Uh, Eric, in response to Greg's comment of being, quote, unquote, the least technical person here, uh, Greg is also the guy who knows uh, more about quantum computing than any 10 people I've uh, ever met. And Serge says he's actually a humble uh, quantum guru, uh, Schrodinger's guru. Uh, Mark, go for it. Um, I guess another, just kind of going back to the original question of like, hey, data space is moving really fast. Like, what do I do? Especially when there's like new, you know, machine learning papers coming out every other day. Um, one thing I really try to focus on is, you know, really, I think, Ken was talking about this, like crafting the career you want. And so start thinking about like, what type of companies do you want to work for? Are they like Fortune 500? Are they like the big tech? Are they startups, right? Um, and then within that, like what type of industry that you want to be in? And then from those type of companies and that profile, like what's the typical data maturity of these companies? And from there, you can really work backwards of like, well, then given this data maturity, what technical stack do I need to be really good at? So, you know, I originally started in health tech. Um, and healthcare is really slow to integrate machine learning because there's a lot of regulation. So, you know, I didn't need, I need, I need more experimental design and like um, regression analysis, right? Um, now I'm an HR tech, but again, I'm still in a startup. So these advanced machine learning, deep learning stuff's not really important. I've been shifting way more towards data engineering because simply we just need to get the data into a state where we can do those cool things. And so that's where I've been focusing on. I've been really enjoying. And a big reason why I've shifted more towards data engineering is, well, I love startups and I plan on being startups. And every time I go to a startup, the, the data quality or data processes and pipelines are just uh, a dumpster fire. And so I enjoy fixing that. But say, for instance, you know, I wanted to go work for, you know, like Google or Facebook or things like that, then I would totally work on more so like A-B testing and like machine learning and like thinking about that stuff in production. Um, and so again, just really trying to craft what what industry, what space, and then being very critical about that data maturity. And that'll give you a leg up in interviews because now when you do your research and you're going to be going to those interviews and saying like, hey, you know, this is why I noticed, you know, what, what is your current processes? What do you think about this? And you can now be like strategic and thinking like, well, what can value can I add to move you forward in your data maturity? Or given these data maturity constraints, what value can I add on the business um, while also taking in consideration like, hey, we can't do ML today, right? So yeah, data maturity is the main thing I would focus on. Eric, go for it. I'll kind of piggyback a little bit off what Mark was saying. So like when we talk about, you know, where the industry is going, to me, that's like, that feels really overwhelming because where the industry is going is so big and it's really led by, you know, probably just like a small handful of players. And, but like where most of the companies that, you know, you might be applying for are going is probably like light years behind where the industry is going because some of them are, you know, sure, some of them are incorporating, you know, you know, cutting edge models for things and others are just kind of like starting to embrace using data to make decisions, period, you know? And so like the way that I like keep that in mind is just from trying to rem remind myself like where the things that I'm interested in, the things I'm good at and the things I'm interested in stretching to learn are needed somewhere and it's just like 
it's kind of a numbers game of like, you know, keeping, keeping that in mind and, and, uh, not, I guess, pressuring, pressuring myself to like be perfect because no company is either, you know? And so anyway, that was just a a little, a little piece that helps me remember that most companies aren't on the bleeding edge. And so there's, there's, there's room out there for pretty much any talent set. I'm curious though. I would love to get Vin and, and Mark's input on this. Like, talking about like data maturity and and companies right like obviously there's a lot of companies who are quote-unquote legacy companies you got manufacturing companies maybe brick and mortar retail companies but as these startups start popping up for example like you know a lot of SaaS solutions um, a lot of apps for example um, these are companies that are uh, digital native cloud native companies um, do you think even from the outset, even with having, you know, software people, highly technical software people be the ones that are starting these companies that they're going to suffer from these data maturity issues as well? Or, or like, I'm not sure, like, yeah. Uh, it, and then if so, then how, how does somebody learn about data maturity? Like, is that something you got taught in a boot camp? something that you can't be taught, but you only have to learn the hard way? Um, I don't know if those questions make sense, but um, Makiko is actually in the building. Uh, so Makiko, if you want to answer that, go for it. And then I'd love to hear from, uh, from Mark and, uh, Vin on that. Yeah. I think in general, like starting a startup is always like a really risky endeavor. And I know like for me at multiple startups or like the teams that I was on, like one of the hardest challenges was and one of the most expensive propositions was actually like getting data. Um, so there's like buying the data and then there is getting the people of your platform to generate said data. Um, like all the computation and storage itself and um, like the processing layers, you know, like it's if you if, if you got enough money, you can buy it. But like I feel like the data is the hardest part. And then the other aspect is, you know, a lot of startups, <laughs> they kind of get away with with doing shady stuff because at the end of the day, right? Like they're trying to get to product market fit. They're not necessarily concerned about like they're concerned about security, obviously, but it's like, they're not concerned about necessarily ethics or, or bias, or for example, whether or not they're violating GDPR because startups can kind of get away with stuff like while they're still small at some point they do have to worry about it, but there's like a really kind of long road before they do. Um, But I do think like we're kind of seeing we're seeing like both specialization and also generalization. You're seeing specialization that's led by like the really, really big companies, which they have the infrastructure maturity um, and they're dealing with the unique challenges. But I also feel like you're seeing generalization in that as we kind of build really nice like abstractions on top of layers. So an example would be like the blockchain crypto web three world, right? Like part of the chaos there is that some of the lower layers of abstractions are still being built out. But once you see those abstractions come into play and people really start building on top of it, um, for example, like Web2 frameworks, um, then you'll see stuff really kind of take off. But it, it's it's tricky when it comes to data because you have to get it, you have to store it, you have to make sure you're using it. And more importantly, you have to generate that data flywheel to keep it going. Um, and to some degree, data maturity might actually just be aspirational as opposed to like a real thing that uh, a lot of people have. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Mark and then Vin. Um, I would actually argue that you can have small like startup companies be extremely data mature because maybe they have like an ML based solution. They maybe came out of some university and, you know, they ha- they're like have to be data mature to kind of uh, to enable that. 
Or you have startups where like, you know, they, they have a SaaS offering, but data isn't the focus, but data is what drives it forward. And so, you know, they may have cloud, but like they don't have the proper like uh, data, modern data stack, right? Um, but then you may have like these, you know, Fortune 500 companies, you know, Google, crazy data maturity. They're, they're on the bleeding edge of data maturity, right? But then you may have like uh, Walmart where, and I don't know Walmart's infrastructure or anything like that, but like, because it's such a massive organization, you actually may have pockets of data maturity where it's like one team is just like extremely data mature, but like they're siloed. And another team is just like struggling. So I remember I had, uh, I was talking to a recruiter um, from Walmart for like this healthcare aspect and their whole description of their data stack was just like atrocious. <laughs> but I know like they, they have, a, like they're like pushing these crazy models because they have an online uh, aspect as well. So I think it's really just dependent on um, on just the, I would say how, how, how can I put it? How much is data like important for driving business value? And I think that will determine how data mature they have to be and how much they have to prioritize it. Because if it's a blocker to, you know, becoming profitable or get, reaching their customers, it's going to be prioritized. But if they can reach that avenue through focusing on other things and just get by with the bare minimum, they're totally going to do that too. So it's going to be like a balancing play of, you know, do I focus on data infrastructure or like when he was saying, you know, getting to product maturity or product market fit. But I'm very curious what Ben has to say because he has greatly more experience than me and seen a lot more things. Yeah, definitely. Definitely want to uh, hear what Vin says. But I mean, just a question that popped into my head, maybe we can just let it kind of simmer in the background is, is you know, I guess uh, as somebody who is, you know, let's say you are trying to get into data science, then just be laser focused on the type of company you want to work at because if you are trying to work for quote-unquote legacy companies or you know companies that have these data maturity issues you will probably need a different skill stack that is well beyond just machine learning and computer science stuff to be successful but if you are laser focused like yes i want to work at a, a company where their major offering is machine learning or their major major offering is database then then double down on that. I don't know. Just putting that out there. Uh, but let's go real, to a real quick yeah. context. I wanted to add just kind of building on that. It's like, I specifically wanted to go to a startup where the data maturity was there. So I could actually do my job, but not fully developed because for me, like I want to start my own startup in the future. And I, I've tried in the past. And for me, I'm like, I'm going to face those problems. So I'd rather learn on someone else's kind of budget. Um, to figure out like, all right, we started here and this is what it took to get to this next level. Um, you know, so I, I, I can go through those growing pains, not with my own company. Uh, Vin, let's, uh, let's go to you. I know the com conversation might have uh, meandered a little bit, but let's go back to that original question. Then after Vin, we'll go to uh, Mikiko. I think just context, any company that does tons of acquisitions, that buys tons of companies, buys tons of startups, you have pockets of like you have the main line, which is super mature, you know, that's the reputation that you get for a company like Walmart. But then you have, you know, like Walmart has bought so many companies, they've probably forgotten about some of the companies they've bought. Like there are companies that just sit out there, they're like, wait, we own you guys? <laughs> you know, and, and when they're doing an audit, they discover it. And that's when like their technology organization gets into that group and starts bringing them up to speed and getting them more mature. So yeah, any big company that does a lot of acquisitions, it's, yeah, it, it's chaos down in those acquisitions. But when you start talking about where the field is going, you know, there's, there's going to be a movement towards, and I understand the, the thoughts around generalization. I under, understand the thoughts around, you know, the practical nature of some companies just aren't that mature. 
but we're kind of at the point where if you're not mature by the end of this year or the middle of next year, you're done. I mean, there's just companies that aren't going to be here in, in two or three years. And it's going to be, you know, I talk about this a lot. It's like a great machine learning die off of companies that's coming because at some point you're so far behind, you're never catching up. Your companies are just, your competitors are just going to lap you. So be really careful when you look at the, your first company, because you know, and I'm not being, this isn't hyperbole, like in two years, a bunch of companies aren't just aren't going to be here. And some of those are going to be massive names, you know, and you're going to look at it and go, wait, I started my career with this great company and it just died. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's a horrible realization when you're in one of these companies, because for your first year, you don't see it. For your first year, everything makes sense. Everything's great. And so if that company has 18 months left to live, you can almost, your career walks off a cliff. So be really, really careful about the company that you go into. Low maturity companies are not a bad thing as long as they have a plan and a strategy. Like if they have a roadmap to get better, then definitely, you know, you're looking at a good opportunity if they don't run screaming. And that also leads to the necessity for specialization because in order for companies really to mature and deploy reliable reliable models into production that actually work, that actually make money, that'll do what the business needs it to do or do what the customers need it to do, there's just a, a, another level of capability that you need that requires people to start really niching into areas of specialization. I mean, you even see machine learning engineering is kind of splitting in half where you have an automation, you know, a tools and automation side, and you have a customer facing platform side. And, and so watch really what people are building. And, you know, the follow the data is a great, great piece of advice. Follow, you know, really where startups are going, follow the research is another great piece of advice, but look at what's getting to market and follow the products, follow where people are deploying and being successful. And if you want to have a really successful career over the next five years, Look at what they fail at, because if you get good at what companies don't seem to be able to execute on, that's a valuable career path. So it's another way to kind of figure out what you want to get into and where you want to go. Just, I mean, I can't overemphasize, be really, really careful about which company you go into, because there are some that are just headed off a cliff. Uh, let's go to Makiko, then uh, Greg after that. Sorry, I totally lost my train of thought because I was making jokes about my relatives. Um, yeah. <laughs> sorry if they, to, if they hear this. Then. Oh, do you, do you want us to come back to you? or um, Trends. Yes. Trends. Yes. Uh, one thing I would say, though, because um, a couple of us, we were speaking at a panel yesterday for people interested in machine learning engineering, and that question of, like, how do you get into the field comes up and what you should know. And it's like, well you probably shouldn't peg your career on like the super, like entirely on like the super new, like sexy tech. That just seems to just because of the risk. So I would say that like, if you're a new data scientist or bootcamp grad, like really make sure you're, you're creating like a portfolio of experiences. The other reason why that's kind of important is that like, I think until you sort of get into your role, like, it's a filtering problem, right? Like if you don't have experience, you're not going to know what to like filter out, like in terms of skills and topics and stuff like that. So it's one of these things where like sticking with patterns that are sort of tried and true. Um, so for example, instead of trying a fancy new, like open, like open source, like Python library that maybe only has like five stars and, uh, maybe one or two, like, you know, committers and contributors, maybe instead going with scikit-learn or something like that. Right. And, you know, instead of jumping straight into Pascal or Julia or Scala, it's like maybe spend your time learning SQL and 
Python and or like and or Python and R and or uh, that like super cool language. Right. So that's just all I would say for like bootcamp grads is, you know, it's very easy to get super distracted by like fancy stuff. Um, but the reality right is that there's still a lot of people that like program and C. they probably don't want to, but they, they make good money. They might like Rust might be the most popular language off of off Stack Overflow. But guess how many people are actually like making their living off of like C, Java, C++, Python, all of that, all the all that good stuff. So I would just say that um, make sure you're like appropriately balancing that portfolio of skill sets. Um, yeah. The lesson is if you're kind of new, then just focus on the stuff that you know you'll need to do and not get distracted by trends or, or shiny objects. Just, you know, there's stuff that you're invariably going to need to know to be successful as a data scientist. Focus on that, get good, and then you know, explore after after that. Greg, go for it. I, I hope that was the lesson with you. I could have been butchering it. Let me know if it wasn't. No, that was great. Yeah. Greg, go for it. Mine was kind of like um, more of a question for Vin and anybody who wants to give their opinion. You mentioned like some companies will go would go away in the next year or so if they don't really um, adjust their usage or their ability to create value with data. Um, I also see an opportunity for like legacy industries like the oil and gas, for example. Um, I feel like I think they are getting more open to accepting that getting value from data is super important to kind of understand, for example, um, uh, you know, the landscape um, of, of, of their product, I guess, like when they're trying to plan or for cost optimization and things like that. Um, with this industry being so old and the manufacturers being so mature in their process, but not necessarily up to par with the way they leverage data. I mean, could a petroleum engineer say, look, I'm going to learn AI ML to kind of bring value to this industry and I can be a winner then, right? So, you know, is there still opportunity for these old industries to win? Like the shipping industry, for example, right? We know it's not going away, but there are ton of there are tons of opportunities for AI ML to kind of streamline it and make it better. What do you guys what do you guys think? Let's uh let's go to Vin for this one and then uh let's go to Serge after that. Um and lots of great comments coming in too so I'll make sure to uh to get to those as well. Go for Vin. Yeah, I'm not going to wish death on any company uh Macy's uh I wouldn't in a million years you know, say something like, yeah, no, I just, I, I wouldn't do that. I'm not that kind of person. Um, but when you look at companies that are in industries, like what you said, I mean, you look at Maersk, they are, if you look at the way they consume and utilize data for optimization, world-class Airbus, old company, you would think legacy. No, some of the absolutely most cutting edge data and analytics and edge computing like are embedded systems. Sorry, I hit the buzzword, my bad. But you look at just some of these industries where you're like, oh, that's legacy. No, and they are completely modernized using a ridiculous amount of data intelligently and not like chasing shiny objects like a whole lot of other industries are doing. They're doing, you know, what's the simple solution that we can deploy that works? And then you have hardware constraints, you know, like with Airbus, it's, that is possibly the most realistic company on the planet when it comes to how to deploy and monetize data science and machine learning. So I don't think it's the legacy industries that are in trouble. Like shipping is going to be there forever. 
But I think they're going to start moving more and more towards our autonomous because, I mean, it's a ship in the ocean. They don't really have to worry about hitting anything. You know, so when people talk about autonomous use cases, like, why wouldn't you, you know, we got autopilots already. Why why wouldn't you continually just work towards, you know, and that's what those kinds of companies are working on. Those are the high value use cases for them. So there are a ton of these legacy companies that have massive opportunities to use data and they've figured it out, you know, and like I said, they're so much more realistic. You know, it's really just this pragmatism where, well, you know, the, the pirates are automating too. I mean, they've, they've seen the writing on the wall. They understand that, you know, they don't modernize. They're not going to be able to get the AI driven ships where, you know, like the terminators are on board, but you know, and that's the, that's the other side of this is, you know, in response to competition, companies are going to quickly modernize when they realize, you know, this is my last chance. And so there's going to be a ton of opportunities in legacy, legacy business industries, but I don't think that, you know, when we think about them as existing or older, I don't think they're going to stay that way for very long, but you're going to definitely see consolidation in those industries because smaller players just don't have enough money and money's not free anymore. Used to be, you know, it was free last year. Now it's going to start getting expensive startups are going to be getting a good influx of cash, but everybody else is just, you know, the pipes off. So yeah, I think legacy industries have a ton of opportunity, but it's only going to be for a very small number of consolidated players. And I think interesting, interesting, interesting failures are coming over the next year, year to 18 months. Thank you. A lot of questions coming, uh, not questions, but comments coming down on LinkedIn. I think this might have been some points earlier, but Coach was saying interesting point, Vin. Sounds like what's been happening with autonomous vehicles, a number of those companies won't be around in 18 months. Uh, Rodney Beard saying we have the same problem. We are facing competition from global NGOs that are doing data science and machine learning. This will eventually impact funds. Uh, Oracle is like that, Vin. Some things are super advanced and other services or software is acquired, frozen in time and neglected. Um, question coming in. Uh, well, actually, it's a comment, then a question from Dave Brown. By the way, if anybody has questions here in the chat, let me know. Uh, Dave Brown says something about local government. Had a choice between getting a job or taking an internship. Didn't have the confidence, so I took the internship. Great learning experience, but they're both behind. Their answer to anything was, don't worry. We have Power BI. Uh, so we could do this in Python, but if we used R or Python and got, don't worry, we have Power BI. Uh, but finally, ask for a real answer. I'm just not going to read the rest of that, but he's asking, uh, have you ever been in an interview and rejected because you were too good? <laughs> I've been told that I need to dumb myself down and improve my chances, but I don't know how. Uh, I don't even know how to respond to that. Mark, go for it. Um, maybe, maybe not necessarily too good, but I knew I, I was looking at a train wreck. Um, essentially, uh, it's coming out of boot camp, and I got, uh, had an interview for a data engineer role. And they basically described to me, yeah, I asked like basic question, like, what's the tech stack? Like, what, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, it's all Excel. We want you to manage this 500 person company, like all their data via Excel as your data engineer. And I instantly knew that was a train wreck for anyone. And I felt bad because my friend recommended me the job. And so I sent them a kind letter, hopefully kind, saying like, hey, you may want to reconsider this because uh, any data engineer that's going to fix this problem is not going to use Excel. Uh, Matt Blasa, go for it. I had something similar happen to me. So I was interviewing for a data analyst and it turned out what they wanted was a Tableau developer. So I went through four rounds of interviews, did the SQL test got like really good, went straight through it, did really well. 
uh, final interview, it was the manager straight up asked me, um, are you sure you're not going to be bored here? And that right there is when I knew that it wasn't that they weren't really looking for what I was, what I had. So it was an eye-opening experience. I'm curious if anybody else has had an experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how I'd respond to anybody ever said, dumb yourself down. That would be, uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, sure, Vin probably has some stories to share there. Have you, uh, have you ever been, have you ever, yeah, <laughs> have you ever showed up to a place and just was like, this is not, not even worth, you could pay me much as you want to pay me, but it still wouldn't be worth my time. Yeah, I think some of my early, early in data science days, I had to politely nope out of interviews and I've gotten, you know, I've gotten good at politely just saying, no, I, you know, I, I would not provide value. That's my new, my new no is I don't believe I would provide the kind of value that you're looking for. But yeah, I mean, the story I always tell is I was in a, an interview in 2012 and I had somebody ask me for my GPA and I was just like, what? You know, and I, I didn't graduate in 2010. Let's just put it that way. I mean, we were not even, that's not even the right decade for my graduation. So and yeah, you almost have to self screen at some point during interviews where if things get too surreal, just, I mean, I know you, I know every opportunity feels like a good opportunity when you're trying to break into the field and you're trying to get, just trying to land a job in the first place. And so it kind of feels like any job will do, but don't, if you get into an interview where you just start getting asked stupid questions or they start talking about you know, a particular technology that just doesn't make sense for what they're trying to apply it to, you know, sometimes people get stuck with legacy and that's fine. But if you don't hear them sort of acknowledging this isn't the perfect stack and we're going to move someplace else, yeah, don't dumb yourself down, you know, unless they're bringing you in as like that, that senior plus plus person who's going to save the day. You know, if they're asking you to put on a cape, that's one thing, but if they think they're the ones who are right, run screaming and don't be afraid to run screaming from an interview. You know, if you have to, if you have to politely ask them to find you an exit, just do it. Uh, that'd be, that'd be entertaining. Like, yeah, this is uh we're just gonna go ahead and end this guy's not, not worth any of our times anymore. Um, let me know if anybody else has questions scanning the, uh, the, the chat doesn't look like there's any questions coming in there or on LinkedIn. So uh, let me know, man, if you guys got questions. Um, it does not look like it. All right. One thing, uh, Greg. Yeah, one thing I had, um, I think I can't remember if it was you, Vin, or somebody else. You guys mentioned a lot about, um, you know, using AI. AI is the, I think it was one of your uh, avant-goo to your articles, Vin, where you think of talking about AI is the engine behind um, the metaverse. Um, could you could you explore a little bit of that, like without spilling the beans in your article? Because uh, I know you know a lot of people will find value uh, behind your article. So just wanted to understand, like, what are your thought process there, and how do you think it's going to solidify um, that reality? I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, when you think about metaverse, I think the majority of people think too grandiosely to begin with, and I think that's our biggest problem. Is we think of this automatic, you know, all of a sudden everybody's going to wear some headsets and we're all going to be doing virtual meetings in, in the metaverse and, you know, the multiverse of madness will come up. And like, I made a joke, my machine learning post is ML, no way home, but we're not going to go there. That's not where we go first. Metaverse already exists. And once you realize that, then you can start digging into the technologies that support what the actual metaverse is right now. Contents, the metaverse. How do you navigate content? 
I mean, when you have a massive metaverse, you need something like Google, which can help you find the kinds of content experiences that you want to have. And so that's, that's machine learning. Like you can't navigate that catalog. You can't navigate a virtual space. You can't do that unless you have advanced machine learning platforms that enable that experience. Otherwise it's just a content catalog that no one can consume. If you have, uh, you know, like Disney's the example that I continually use, because if, if anyone keeps Facebook up at night, it's Disney because Facebook is all online. Disney has parks, Disney has its own content, and it's a juggernaut of content creation. They have a robotics division that they don't talk about very much, but it's really, really good. And you might be seeing like a show in the park over the next year that starts using robotics. You might be seeing some attractions very soon that use robotics. And you got to start thinking about that. They have an app and multiverse right now is apps. You know, there's a, a Disney genie. They are incentivizing people to use their apps when you go to the parks. And now they have a metaverse component because, and people overlook simple overlaps like this, where you're at a Disney park, you have an app, you don't need a VR headset. You have this experience with you. And now how does Disney tie in games? Do it through the app. How do you tie in serving content to people who are bored in line? Do it through the app. How do you monetize? So you create a marketplace. All of that's driven by machine learning. You can't do any of the things that we've talked about without machine learning. Because without that as the platform behind Metaverse, there's nothing there. You simply can't create the kind of experiences unless you put machine learning as a platform at the very center of it and build your experiences on top of machine learning. And that's really, you know, when I talk about credibility in the multiverse or in the metaverse, credibility in the metaverse is really, have you ever deployed a machine learning platform, a sophisticated machine learning platform? Have you? If you haven't, you're a wannabe. It, it, and it's that stark. So I think when you look at metaverse going forward, I think if you look at those really simple use cases that are out there now that are working and those companies that are intelligently integrating what they already have into the multiverse and using machine learning as a platform to support that, those are the ones who are going to win because they're not trying to create like this pie in the sky version of it. They're going to incrementally get people there and they're going to be the ones who have multiverses that people want to be a part of because the metaverse isn't like this one thing. It is a multiverse. And the, the companies that are being pragmatic about it right now, like Amazon, your company has a oh, scary, scary where you guys are right now, because there's so much opportunity and you already have the platform of all machine learning platforms. So, you know, the opportunity for Amazon is just ridiculous. And, and you have that overlap between physical and virtual and you have a content catalog, you know, and so you start looking at companies that way and you look at who has that opportunity, who's deployed the platforms that could support a multiverse. And you start realizing, okay, these are the winners. Those are, there's just no chance because if it's just a multiverse by itself, you know, if it's just content, that's not enough to be a multiverse or a, a metaverse of any sort. And it's actually pretty interesting, right? It's one thing to put on headsets and just look, it's one thing to put on headsets and, and just look inside of, let's say, a Whole Foods. It's another thing to put on headsets, walk around the Whole Foods, pick up items, check out with them, and and then have them delivered the next day type of thing. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of generative models for sure, man. I wonder what 
gnarly gans those are going to be uh greg any follow-up or no that's uh i think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good uh way of looking at it and um making everyone think uh and and especially how you see uh things going forward um you know the follow-up question that i have is kind of like you know you guys probably heard the the announcement from Facebook talking about this super cluster. So you're talking about 16,000 GPUs, five exaflops, whatever that means, or the buzzwords, a giant compu computing thing, right? Um, you know, a lot of people are saying this is going to be the engine behind, you know, all of that computation, all of this uh, persistent, reliable computing power that will power this AI model that you speak of for the Facebook version of the metaverse, or what are you guys seeing uh, that will come out of this super cluster. I see Ben smiling, so he probably has an opinion about that. Yeah, good, super cluster. Yeah, good, It'll yeah. be a cluster. <laughs> a cluster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a whole bunch of press releases that are cool, and I like them because you know what Facebook's doing is they're trying to move everyone forward. They're trying to get people to invest in what Facebook understands must move forward in order for all of the stuff that they want to do to be supported. And that's really what Facebook's announcement was. It was basically, look, it, you as companies not named Amazon, Microsoft, and Google need to start building out more advanced compute, or you are going to be reliant on companies named Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. And it, that's the strategy for those big three companies is you will build your metaverse on our platform. So we make money, you know, even if you don't use our metaverse, you run yours on ours. So, you know, and that's the strategy. And Facebook's really saying, look, you have to create more advanced compute or you as a company will always be beholden to someone who you may also be competing with Walmart. So there is, you know, there is this sort of awareness that they're trying to bring to the marketplace with these hyperbole type announcements, like talking about the metaverse and talking about advanced compute. They're going to roll out a model that has a trillion parameters here pretty soon or something like that, you know, because they want to let other people, other companies know it's like, Hey, you know, there's all of this other more advanced functionality that needs to happen. You know, they're basically sounding an alarm for other companies because they need help competing against Greg. Basically they, they need help. They need to build a coalition and they, you know, they see the writing on the wall. And so you're going to hear announcements like this. That, and makes, it's really, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, you know, it, it does like, make sense. Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, to, to ask you a little bit more about that, it does make sense, right? So uh, they're building this super cluster on their own and having, you know, make, given that they have the, the technical skills to maintain it, right? and even grow it at some point to remove their dependencies on the main cloud providers, right? Because the main cloud providers can, all they can do is sit there and wait for people to build metaverses on top of what they already have, right? So um, that gives um, uh, analysts out there or investors confidence that Facebook is not going to be at the mercy of another Apple game, right? So where Apple can just squeeze that little pipe juice uh, any minute they want, uh, they're kind of removing themselves from uh, this. So it, it totally makes sense. When Facebook's preparing for what you know is coming next is quantum internet, quantum cloud, they're <laughs> getting ready for that. I mean, that cluster, they don't really care about this cluster. They're starting to get smart so that when the next replacement cycle comes up, 
they can insert themselves into it. And this is how you do it. That's how AMD started taking on, you know, Intel. That's how NVIDIA started taking on Intel is they took small steps in sort of in advance of major pushes in advance of these major next generations that were coming up. And that's how they've always, you know, that's sort of the, the playbook is how you compete with an incumbent is you get in, you learn at the end of a technology cycle to prepare to jump into the next technology cycle. That's what Facebook's doing is they're getting ready for that. They're getting ready. I mean, they're going to go in the same direction when it comes to physical experiences. They're going to get into content. They're going to Netflix. They're going to get into, um, you know, other directions where they can start merging what they have right now is a social network, which is possibly the most powerful data set ever assembled. <laughs> and that's their competitive advantage is that thing's scary. You know, if they never gather another piece of data again, I bet you their models would be accurate for the next five years. Like they have that much data right now and they are that advanced as far as machine learning capabilities are concerned. So they have strong competitive advantages that they're trying to put behind some of these new announcements are really aimed at competing with companies they've never competed with before in the past. And this is, you know, I talked about this in one of my posts, we're talking about Disney and Facebook, you know, if they don't figure out a way to partner and if Facebook and Amazon don't figure out a way to partner. And if all of these mega companies that you could never see competing with each other, don't figure out how, you know, ways that they can partner on this, it's going to be a war of annihilation and you don't want to see what that looks like. Because the businesses that depend on, a, you know, that depend on Amazon or that depend on Facebook or that depend on Disney, you take one of those out of a top tier and drop them down a peg, all those businesses evaporate. And I mean, we're talking about some serious collateral impacts. And so it's scary to think about. I mean, it's fun to think about the big guys beating each other up, but the implications of that, you know, from a consolidation standpoint and collateral damage standpoint, is really scary. Absolutely. The, there's a show on uh, Amazon Prime Video. It's called The Feed, which is essentially like the the metaverse. It came out a couple of years ago, um, and 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 it just to, to to Vin's point about these companies pairing up in, in this version of the feature, there are companies like like Facebook, Amazon, whatever. Like these giant companies had merged together uh, that are standalone companies now that are so disconnected and, and seemingly unrelated. But in this vision of the future, they're all merged together. Uh, there's the, the the feed, and there's another one. Um, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's all about uploading consciousness to the cloud after you die and creating a metaverse there where living people can also visit. Um, if I remember the name of that show, I'll, I'll get to you. Um, it's on the tip of my tongue, though. Uh, this is the biggest risk for Web3. Mark talked talk to us about what you meant by that. Definitely. So there was this really great article um, by, I'm forgetting the name, but it's Moxie. But, um, you know, what? I, I'm really into Web3 right now. It's taking up a lot of my free time. It's just so interesting. But, you know, I'm always looking for articles that are, are, are against it because I want kind of a balanced view. Like, what are the pros and cons? Most articles suck. Um, they really don't dive into it. But this person basically like, you know what? I want to get a first impression. I'm going to build some dApps, which are decentralized apps. I'm going to create some NFTs and just poke around. And they actually did their research. And what they really came up with is, is you know, a huge flaw of Web3 currently is that a lot of the stuff relies on cloud computing um, to run. And by that very definition, that defeats the purpose of decentralization. You're stuck on a centralized source. 
Now there are movements towards to create like decentralized compute power, but you know, that's not going to compete with Amazon or Google in the same type of scale. Um, and so people are making a lot of trade-offs between, you know, being fully decentralized versus, you know, using these uh, already established uh, uh, services for cloud computing, which is a no-brainer to use that, especially if you're like a small team and you're scrappy and trying to build something. Of course, I'm going to use some <laughs> compute power from Amazon from a free server. Um, but, you know, as you grow, and, and I think Vin was kind of alluding to this, like, if you become kind of a competitor to, to those services, you know, what's going to stop them from, you know, ending your contract or saying you violate terms of service, you know, um, I'm not saying they will do that, but, you know, it defeats the whole argument of like, we're decentralized and that's what makes us secure when you're fully run in the background on a centralized compute resource. And, and to add to this, Mark, is at the end of the day, the fundamental platform that enables everything right now, outside of just the transportation industry that where business built on top of the transportation industry is the internet. The internet is that layer that allows everything to exist right now in the digital world, that allows people to distribute just about anything in the digital world. And, if, if, and it's kind of like we're going to run in circles in, in terms of now we know about 50% of folks don't have access to internet. And then you have a company like Tesla launching satellites to create a new layer of way of thinking about the internet, which means you're going to depend on that too. So the other 40, 50% who don't have access, we rely on that satellite up there to get access, which means if you're going to build a true decentralized uh, network, then you're going to have to rely on something like Tesla for access to the internet to distribute your content or distribute your uh, information. So it's kind of like a, it's, it's a convoluted way of looking at things where there's an entity or an organization always on top where you have to build on top of it to, to, kind, of, to kind of win. So the idea of that Web 3.0 is still maturing, but hopefully it'll get to a point where it's really generating value for uh, those who put time to, you know, put products out there in a distributed way. Every super intelligent, smart person I know right now is obsessed with Web3. I just wish I had time in the day to, uh, to, to search that. And you all know how efficient I am with my time. Uh, maybe I'll make that something to uh, dive deep into, uh, you know, in, in quarter three and beyond. Um, but yeah, excellent insight. Thank you very much uh, for kicking off that discussion, Greg. Uh, let me know if there's any other questions coming in. It doesn't look like it. Um, uh, questions coming in from Russell. I guess we can table that for next week. Y'all, thank you so much for 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 joining me today. I uh, hope you guys had a great uh, week. Hope you guys had, had a great session. Um, tune in next week uh, for the office hours, but also next week on um, on Wednesday for the Comet office hours. We're doing a panel discussion talking about uh, all about uh, best practices for managing experiments. We got a lot of good friends coming on the show. Um, Shantana Tully is going to be there. Uh, she's been here in the office hours, or sorry, uh, happy hours numerous times, also on the podcast as well. Susan uh, Shu Chang, if you guys don't know Susan, follow her on LinkedIn. She's, she's awesome. Uh, data scientist and a game developer. And then W. Ronnie Huang, uh, who's a research scientist over at Google. Um, yeah, I'm excited to, to chat with them this Wednesday, 10 a.m. Central Time. Uh, it's going to be streamed live on, on YouTube and LinkedIn. So if you miss it, you can definitely catch that. Uh, also shout out to Matt Blaser for coming on to uh, the Comet Office Hours earlier this week. I see Matt still in the uh, room. Uh, if you guys didn't get a chance to tune into that discussion, definitely do do so. It's um, 
We got Abe Gong, who's the co-founder and CEO of uh, Superconductive. That's the company that found Great Expectations. Jimmy Whitaker from Pachyderm uh, and Matt Blaza himself. A lot of great insights being shared. Uh, episode released today with Loris Marini. So check that out. Last week's episode was Dr. Joe Perez. The week before that, Scott Taylor. The week before that was all about blockchain for data scientists with Jeremy uh, Rashantel. I think Jonathan Rashantel. Uh, who also has a number of courses on LinkedIn learning. Um, so definitely check out that episode. It was released on January 7th. Cool. That's a lot of updates, guys. That's a lot of killing time, making sure there wasn't any of the questions. So thank you all so much. Carlos, uh, bring Carlos on the show. Yeah, there's a, you know, I've got such a long delay with my episode releases. So there is another episode being released with Carlos, but it's one that we had recorded almost a year ago. Um, so I'm Curious to see how his uh, how his predictions line up with what he had predicted back then, um, but yeah, like I've got enough episodes in the backlog right now to release until like July of uh, this year. Just taking a break from recording, um, y'all. Yeah, I'll bring Carlos on again. Definitely, I'm gonna I'm gonna read up on Web three and and everything. Just just start educating myself. That's gonna be a goal. Um, you know, in the next coming couple of months, um, I might go deep down the rabbit hole with Web three uh, interviews on the podcast. So if you guys know people who are notable and knowledgeable in that field that would be willing to come on to a podcast uh, with, you know, a no-name podcaster like myself, I would appreciate that because um, that's, that's, I'm committing right now. That's going to be the next rabbit hole I go down uh, into. It's going to be uh, Web3 stuff off the clock and deep learning on the clock. Y'all take care. Have a good rest of the evening. Have a good weekend. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do some big cheers, everyone? 